Enter if you dare this ghastly conversation of teens fraught with despair and recent lacerations. Final girl, chase after her, don't let her get away. But first, the slumber podcast massacre. Welcome to Slumber Podcast Massacre with TNA. That's Tim. That's Andy. And this is a podcast about horror. Every week, Tim and I are going to dive in and talk about a different horror film from your well-known classics to that rare, rare gem sitting at the back of your video store shelf. Everyone remembers video stores. This week, we are going to talk about the 1979 Solid Gold Phantasm. Tim... Have you ever been inside a funeral home, like in the basement? You know, not necessarily in the basement, but I did acolyte, uh, which is another word for altar boy, uh, for a, a funeral. It was actually the first funeral I ever did, and I was probably 12 years old. And the, the church that I was at had the main church area, and it also had a smaller chapel. So I get pulled out of class by my my pastors. They bring me into the smaller chapel, and the body is in there. And it's the only thing in there besides the the pastor and myself. So the pastor kind of runs me through how this works, what I do, what candles I light, when I blow them out, all the, the rigmarole of the service. And then he says, okay, I'll see you in a little bit, and just walks out. And... I'm just stuck there with the dead body. Oh God! In How the old room. were you? I was probably 12. Okay, I'd say. Um, and uh, it's funny. It's you don't necessarily want to look at the dead body, but you also know that it's kind of okay to look at it. I mean, what's it going to do to yeah, you? Yeah, no one. Yeah, right. So, and and interestingly enough, my uh, I have a relative that was a, an oral surgeon. So there's a bit of a, a medical background in my, my family there. So I was never really bothered by um, mortuary science uh, or, or any of that sort of thing or funeral homes. Um, it never scared me. Yeah. Um, but then again, the first time that you're just alone in a creepy chapel with a dead body, it, uh, it's an experience. Yeah, I would imagine. Yeah. I mean, just being in a chapel scares me. So <laughs> right. yeah. I can imagine tacking on a dead body at the age of 12. Yeah. I would be very uncomfortable in that scenario. It is. Yeah, there's not a lot of protocol for that. Yeah. Like, do I just sit down and look at it? <laughs> I mean, I, you know, yeah. Time to, time to spill your darkest secrets to someone. <laughs> right. Hey, he's not going to tell anyone. No, he's very quiet. I've always been curious. Like, I've never been in one, but I've always... I've, uh, it seems like such a, uh emotional detachment from death like cleaning up a dead body like there's such a uh process to it it's it's so procedural that like treating i guess it's you just have to accept like that's not a person anymore right and those so a certain f- philosophy that probably has to come with being a mortician or an undertaker or something like that there's also a massive salary that comes along with it <laughs> that's <though>. true <laughs> it kind of motivates you a little bit yeah. those guys get quite a bit of compensation only has to be because people are weird and superstitious and have supernatural ideas about people so they they you know it's like oh this person's brave enough 
to not mess with the soul of yeah. you know like I don't want to do it right <laughs> let's pay him a but lot of money any critical thinkers like I don't it's just dead organic tissue I don't you'll pay me for that all right fine it isn't it kind of funny to think about like the aesthetic of a funeral home like we all know what we're there for you know yeah. so who was the first guy that decided what funeral homes should be like? Right. I mean, it's what is it? It's the first kind one of, was just a party palace, and the guy's like, I feel, people feel very uncomfortable here, right? Or that, and then they try to go the other route, and it's just like cinder blocks and chains, and just like, <laughs> just like moaning, you know, like right. it's a it's a death place, yeah, right? Like let's make it look like this death. place is full of ghosts, right? <laughs> Yeah, we don't even have to try that hard. <laughs> um, but no, they're, they, it, it, I, I mean, I haven't been in a lot of funeral homes, but they all kind of generally feel that sort of, it's like a nice antiseptic, antisepticness. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's nice and neutral, I yeah. guess. Yeah. They, yes, they do feel clean. Yeah. Clean and sort of just like, there are very few like statements being made. <laughs> right. You know, neutral carpet, quiet music, you know. Yeah. But, do you want a quiet funeral? Do you want a funeral? I, I do, and I don't want it to be quiet. Yeah. Um, being of, of partial Irish background, uh, that's uh, it's very much in that culture. The, the death and the funeral and the wake is something to be celebrated and gotten through with humor and partying and fun as opposed to just sort of sad. I mean, the sadness is implied, right? Somebody just died. You're, right. you're naturally, you're already going to be sad. You don't have to promote that. Let's have a little fun. Let's talk yeah. about the good times. There's Let's- an episode of uh, Star Trek, the next generation where uh, Jordy and uh, I forget the girl's name. They are caught in a uh, transporter malfunction. So they're kind of phased out. So they're still alive, but they think they, they they've lost them and data's in charge of the, the funeral service and they you know are taking the hyper lift or whatever it's fucking called yeah up to the deck and he's like yeah so i like you know uh just saw like people like uh you know death is a celebration of someone's life and they like the doors open there's a jazz band playing and it's just <laughs> a blast and they're just all kind of like yeah like William Riker picks up his trombone and jumps right in with the band. Like it's, and I remember as a kid being like, "Yes, that is what I want my funeral to be." Like, force everyone to just like, you all have to jitterbug while you're at the funeral. I I promise you, as your dear dear friend, that if if your time runs out before mine, I will make sure that you get a space jazz funeral. Thank you, and make sure Jonathan Frakes is there playing <laughs> trombone. Yeah, he's probably got like a $1,300 appearance fee. I mean, yeah, I can, that's I can fine. cover that. That's yeah. fine. He needs the work. If you like explain the reference, he'd be like, that's tight. I'm there. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. So I, don't, I, don't, <laughs> I don't get asked to play trombone very often. but No, that's not true. That guy played on a Fish album. He Did played he trombone. Really? Yeah, they do a song called Riker's Mailbox. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. It's a garbage song, but it's more of a transition between songs. But still, you got to love it. Anyway, we talked. We saw a movie. Yeah. It's called Phantasm, and it's fantastic. It is with the PH. Yeah, um, Phantasm. Yeah, let's uh, let's talk real quick. That well, first of all, there's so much to talk about with this film. Um, it defies labels. Um, uh, labels are uh, uh, have been attempted 
to be attached to it. Uh, some people want to call it sci-fi. Some mm-hmm. people want to call it horror. Some people want to call it fantasy. It, it really fits all of those labels. Um, and it's kind of interesting how it got there. And we'll, we'll get into why this movie has the sort of dream logic feel that it does. But uh, just to give a real quick nod to the origins, um, one of the more interesting aspects about this movie is that it was done by someone who is so young. Don Coscarelli wrote it, directed it, uh, did pretty much everything else that you can do with a movie for it. He had some success as a teenager, uh, and he wrote a movie called Jim, the World's Greatest and filmed it. And it actually got the attention of uh, some executives at Universal. Uh, they saw it. They liked it. Liked it. They uh, acquired the rights to it. They gave him some office space so that he could finish it. And this is this is amazing that this happens to an 18 year old. Yeah. Um, but it did, and he came out with a second film um, that also did well. And by well, I don't mean we're not talking about like breaking, you know blockbuster records here but i mean it was it was pulled off it was financially successful yeah well i'd yeah i'd say for it it did very well because yeah. it's a three hundred thousand dollar budget well phantasm Which itself show? oh yeah. yeah oh you're talking about yeah. okay but but he's you're still he's, talking about the first movie right but he's he's cranking out these movies and in fact he even tried to go to film school and they would not let you uh, or we, he was going to some university, and they wouldn't let you major in film studies until, like, your junior year. And he's like, well, uh, would you like to see the award-winning films <laughs> I've already made? Right, yeah. And they literally would not let him do it. So he's Jesus. like, F you, I'm out of here. Yeah. So so he left. But this is, uh, this is a guy that uh, has had that early success, a kid, really. And his parents were extremely supportive. Uh, I believe his dad had retired from the military, uh, both his mom and dad. Uh, were really instrumental in, in supporting him. So he decides that he wants to do a film adaptation of Something Wicked This Way Comes. Yes. And he is obsessed with it, and he's got a friend, and they're writing it together, and they look into it, and the rights are not available, right. and they're just crushed. They're like, maybe we can talk the company that has the rights out of it. And then Disney squashed them. Yes. Yeah. It was yeah. Disney. Yeah. We already gave you an office, okay, kid? <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, that his luck ran out at that point. I don't think they tried to challenge them, but still, right. there was no way they were going. Yeah, because Disney owned the rights to that. Exactly. And Which is weird. That's a Disney movie. Isn't that weird? Yeah, it is weird. And Disney I, used to do gutsy stuff like that. They did. Watcher in the Woods. That yeah. scared the shit out of me as a kid. If you look up, like... Disney horror movies, you will be surprised that there are actually, yeah, like scary Disney movies out there for sure. So he can't do that, but he still likes the idea of like kids seeing that there is something sinister going on in an area in their town. He likes that idea. So he starts writing Phantasm. But when I say starts writing, that never really stopped. No. Uh, He talks about how he continued writing the script all the way through filming. Yeah. And a lot of it was improvised. Exactly. And that's where you get what I referenced earlier, which is dream logic. Now let's, let's just touch on that for a second. You know, when you have a dream and if you tried to explain to somebody what happened in the dream, it it makes no sense. It's like I was my, it was my third grade teacher, but it was actually my mom, but (laughs) it looked like my third grade teacher. And then it turned into my mom. You know, it's like that we were at a Kmart, but it looked like Hobby Lobby. (laughs) 
<laughs> right, right. And it all makes sense in the dream, like you're buying into it. But when you wake up, you realize, obviously, that that just doesn't apply to normal logic. But it applies to dream logic. So that's the feel of this movie, really, from beginning to end. It, it, it starts out with a strange scene uh, where you have some sort of shape-shifting and, like, you don't really know how this person is turning from one identity into another. So really that that otherworldly element mm-hmm. starts early yes. and never really lets off. So let's let's just give a brief if it if if this is even possible. Yeah. A brief synopsis. We're doing the Nancy summary. We're doing the Nancy summary. <laughs> just for you, Nan. The the hot new bit of the podcast, the Nancy summary. Okay. This movie yeah can you give a brief summary essentially it's there uh a guy is killed uh his friends go to his funeral the young brother who uh is obsessed with his older brother is kind of watching he sees the undertaker uh lift this 500 pound casket by himself instead of burying the body which is what they were there to do uh so he suspects something's up with this funeral home and through the course of his investigations he discovers a um, uh, alternate dimensional plot to steal dead bodies to turn them into slaves. You nailed it. I mean, that sums it up, right? <laughs> you nailed it. Um, yeah, and it, it, what you end up getting with that interesting uh, description there, which is actually spot on, um, what you get is sort of a grief tale. Oh, um, yeah. It's, uh, it, it starts out with... These two brothers, one, you know, older and and the other one younger, naturally. (laughs) So these two brothers um, have experienced. (laughs) I I just that was just smooth, wasn't it? It Beautiful. Um, So these two brothers of varying ages um, lose their parents. Their parents have died. And what you're given to understand is that the older brother was actually out on tour as a roadie with bands, with rock bands. And he's a musician himself. So the death of his parents has kind of forced him to postpone his own dreams, come back to his hometown to take care of this kid brother who's just following him all over the place. Naturally, the kid brother has these fears of uh, abandonment. Yeah. And he's grieving, still grieving his parents. The brother's all he has left. Yeah. The brother's moved on already. Right. But this kid is still, he's 13. He's still growing. And now here's a really funny fact about about this movie. It's it's very much a I would call an adult horror film. This is not a children's movie by no. any stretch, right? But we're given this whole you know interesting universe through the eyes of a what would you guess uh, Mike's age to be about thirteen, fourteen? Yeah, like thirteen years. Okay, old. so he's yeah. a young teenager at that. The movie is really presented to us through his eyes. Now, you would say, oh, that's a really interesting choice, Don Coscarelli. Um, I think it's really refreshing that you did that. But the truth is, the only reason why he chose that character to be of that age is because he loved this young actor named Michael Baldwin, who was in one of his previous movies. Oh, he was? Yeah. So he looks like Chloe Sauvigny. He does, yeah. And the the hairstyles from 1979 do not like try to diminish that. No. (laughs) So he loves this young actor, and he's like, "Man, I really think this kid has got the chops to to lead a film." And um, so he sort of writes it, and again, you know, Mm. he's got that love for something wicked this way comes. I'm going to say this was his worst instinct. 
about this movie. Everything else worked. I, the kid was not great. He's not. A, Although, not the worst child actor in the movie. No. <laughs> yes. He is dwarfed, so to speak, by the uh, granddaughter of the psychic yeah. in town. The, 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 the town psychic, like we all have. Um, yeah. That you're you're stumbling onto a really interesting question, and this goes not just for this movie, but horror movies in general. I'm going to ask you this: Do you differentiate when you're watching a movie between silly and bad? Uh, yes. Well, yeah, because you can tell if someone's trying to be silly, right? Like there is a there is a definite there's a look in someone's eye when they don't know what they're doing, right, or how they're supposed to deliver something or if it seems rehearsed like because that is part of acting it's conveying emotion and the eyes are a huge part of that right so yeah if there is a you know unless you are supposed to be dead in the eyes (laughs) if that feature is there that ruins a lot of it exactly and that's that's where i think this movie runs into danger of being judged too harshly by people because I think you're right. There is a difference between silly and bad. While there is bad acting in this movie. Uh, yeah, a ton of it. A lot of what is would be considered, what I would consider is silly in this movie is not necessarily bad. What I consider a bad movie to be is like a Hallmark movie that is just boring as hell. Yes. Like it's cookie cutter characters. It's cookie cutter writing. It's uninspired. That to me is a bad movie. Yeah. Now, if a movie is sort of silly and goofy as hell, like this movie is, it doesn't mean that it's a bad movie. Right. It just means that it's different. Yeah. Rather have a movie with substance and bad acting than, you know, Al Pacino doing a, a uh, right. uh, Adam Sandler movie, right. <laughs> you know exactly. Like, so that's that's so. What what we're saying here is that when when you watch Phantasm, there there is this immediate reaction that is, oh my god, this is kind of awful in some parts. Maybe some yeah. of the acting, um, maybe some of just the the unintentional hilarity. Well, I think what works for this movie because yes, the acting is bad, but it's not it's not stiff. Except for the one girl, it's not wooden. But because I think they're they are all performers. They're mainly the two lead guys are musicians, right? So they are performers. They do know how to enter. They're, they're entertainers, um, which I mean comes off. There is like one part where those two get to play together, and it's you're just like, whoa, wait, what? What is this part? And it's a great moment where you're like, oh, my actors have other talents. Here's a way I can showcase them. Now, in this movie, it is essentially a Do- Dos Equis commercial. Like, there's a nice little <laughs> perfect <laughs> bottle of beer. And this, if I don't, you know, I'm trying to get to know this software as well as I can. And, like, pulling uh, audio off of YouTube. I'm very green to that. So, I really want to, like, pull this song out of the movie. So, if we're able to do it, I'll play it right now. Just a sitting here at midnight And I've been sitting here till noon You see my lady left me lonely Yes she did Baby left me blue 
Okay, so it either just played or it didn't. I hope if if it didn't, please look it up. Please I like to, Google song from Phantasm. I hope to God it did play. I, I, yeah, <laughs> because it's this weird moment. It's this weird interlude, and it's exactly what you said. You know, the, hey, I've got a couple of musicians here. Why yeah. don't I throw in a song? I don't think he was intending that song to go on as long as it did. No, but thank God it's it did. Beautiful though. Yeah, like it got. We watched this with a group, and it was like silence, and you almost hear like a whoa. Yeah, it's wow. like a real pretty little ditty. Yeah, with when some, Reggie like, comes in with like yeah. the back some some backup notes on his guitar. <laughs> yeah, it's really great. And then he finishes it off. You know, you just heard it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Hopefully, <laughs> he finishes it off with my favorite line in the movie. One of my favorite lines, and it's so such a bizarre reaction that I don't think any other human would have to a situation, but they get done with their little jam session and it totally rocks out and it's great. And then he just says, we're hot as love, you know, <laughs> like as if, as if that's some sort of like statement that people have said throughout the years, yeah. like, but no one other than Reggie has ever said we're hot as love. You know, yeah. like, but it's the, you know, you know, that like, like I'm stating something that's so obvious, <laughs> right? We're hot as love. Cause he was, uh, the director's buddy. Like he wrote yeah. this part for, oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, um, he is, uh, such an interesting character. Uh, this character of Reggie, uh, we were talking about, when we were watching it recently. We can't figure out who Reggie is supposed to be. He's kind of just his own animal because he kind of is put across as like maybe the cool, like a cool guy. Yeah. But he's got a severely receding hairline. And by that, I mean bald. Right. But with this long sort of greasy ponytail, yeah. he wears. As a, a bald guy with a ponytail, it's not a good look. I don't know why I have it. <laughs> he's got the full on skullet. Yeah, though. it is. Yeah, it's, yeah. I've just got a spot. He's from the brow back. Yeah. It is, why are you growing your hair that way kind of reaction when you look at him. And in addition to that, why are you wearing a ice cream suit with a leather vest? <laughs> um, he has this. He's always in uniform. Yeah. He's got an ice cream. He's, he's an ice cream salesman. He's a, yeah. He owns his own. It's his own. Yeah. It's Reggie's ice cream. Right. He is and, a small business owner. Right. And, and he wears white pants, white shirt, black, black bow tie, tie yep. bow tie. And uh, and a leather vest at times. So yeah, he's this really. I mean, the, if 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 you're like me and you don't like those Hallmark cookie cutter characters, don't worry, you're gonna love Reggie. Yeah, Reggie's the best. Um, the uh, speaking of characters, we have the tall man. Yeah. Now the tall man is our antagonist. Our tall man, and I I made sure to write this down. Oh, which uh, bridge episode? Uh, um. From uh, our most recent episode, Return of the Living Dead, the guy who played Frank played a character on TV called The Tall Man from the show. No, he, I don't think he played that character, but he was in the show The Tall Man. Oh, really? Yeah. So, boom, bridge. I did not know that. So, yeah, The Tall Man. The Angus tall man. Scrim. Played by Angus Scrim. And Stage he name. has been... Yeah, do you think? Really? I mean, it's like, Well, looking at him? Yeah. yeah. I'd say that guy's name is Angus Scrim. <laughs> right. Exactly. Like, it sounds sort of creepy and like, ang- like <laughs> Angus Scrim's coming to get me, mama. <laughs> right. Like, yeah. 
it's... they dredged this guy up like he was sweeping floors in a bar in Ireland. And they were just like, that guy. <laughs> right. I need him. Yeah, I give me the guy that's reaching down for the club behind the bar to, like, bash everybody's head in in Ireland. There he is. Um, so he's this character's been described as time-traveling, dimension-jumping, shape-shifting supervillain. And that is exactly right. He does every single one of those things. And that just kind of speaks to the oddity and the, the strangeness of this movie in general. You've got some interdimensional travel and yep. time travel. Yep. And so the funny thing is, though, I was just this just occurred to me. What you described in your synopsis as the dead bodies being shrunk down into these dwarf slaves for another dimension is not revealed until what would be considered the final act of this movie. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, you know something weird is going on up there. I mean, you know that quickly. Because you do see, yeah, it opens in the opening scenes. You've got these small, they're like Jawas. They're Jawas. They were modeled after Jawas. They had to have been. Yeah, it's, uh, it is a Jawa. Yeah, it's I mean, a Jawa. Exactly it's just it a faceless, uh, hooded, fully cloaked figure. They're very short, and they make weird little Jawa noises. They don't have the glowing eyes. It's the only thing different from them being Jawas. Um, but yeah, you don't realize until later they are the dead bodies from this mortuary that are then being turned into slaves that are being used at this at what I could only assume is the tall man's home planet. Yeah, you get that impression. Because he is an alien, essentially. He is. And that's why we get this really poetic scene that's just sort of tossed in to the about the middle of the film where uh, Mike is walking downtown. And it's kind of, I guess, the first setup. If, it has, if this scene has to be accomplishing something, it's probably saying, okay, here's the standoff. It's going to be Mike versus the tall man, and, you know, nobody else is around to help him, and it's just these two going at it. So Mike is walking walking downtown, eating a lollipop. He looks across the street, and there's Reggie, and it goes to this slow-mo, which it, the movie doesn't use a lot of slow motion, but in this scene it does. And you've got Reggie opening up his ice cream truck. This sort of, you know, vapor is coming out. So you've got this smoke and this cold. And the tall man is walking and he sort of stops and turns. And he has this, like, like elated reaction to it. Yeah. His eyes close. He puts his hands up. And you sort it's of like get to him. takes a deep breath. Yeah. There's something about whether it's the coldness, like the temperature or the smoke or something. Oh, something that has yeah, an effect yeah. on him that connects with him as, like you said, He's an alien. Yeah. He very much is. So, um, yeah. And then you've got Reggie with just, like, kind of hurrying and doing his job. He's got shades on and everything. Like, there's really nobody to help this kid. I mean, this kid knows something weird is going on. Yeah. And there's, you know, he obviously eventually convinces everybody to help him through the use of one hilarious (laughs) scene that I know you love. Yes. Well, yeah, because, yes, this was is one of those things where it takes extreme evidence, as it should. Like, if your kid brother, who's obviously trying to keep you around, is like, there's uh, dwarves, uh, dwarf druids chasing me. Something weird's happening. You're like, all right, kid. But, yeah. So, yes, this sets up one of my favorite bits. Because Mike is uh, running from, he's in the mortuary. He runs from the tall man, closes a door. The hand it pans up, and you see half of the hand still sticking out. 
So Mike cuts those fingers off, and they're still writhing. It's like this yellow goo. So he takes one of the fingers with him, and eventually that finger <laughs> turns into a, like, monster-faced fly. Or, like, a giant insect. Like a fly, though. But in... I, this scene is so great, because it's, you know, it's guys acting their asses off. <laughs> where... <laughs> They, you know, it's him trapping this monster in this shirt or whatever, but it's trying to fly away. So it's him, you know, doing all the motions about this things flying around. He's slamming. It's like some great Star Trek, like they're getting shot by, you know, where the guys shake on the uh, on the deck of the Enterprise to simulate that they're getting shot at, you know. It's like they're slamming against walls. Uh, Jody comes in and grabs it. They're both wrestling around with this thing as it's furiously flying around. They finally get it into the garbage disposal, which doesn't kill it. No. Because it needs to stay alive so that Reggie can then see it, and that now we've got a trio of guys who are going to fight. <laughs> like, that was all it took. Like, oh, I get it now. Right. Giant fly monster? I'm with you, kid. <laughs> right. And I love the fact that Coscarelli gives that, like, just does them no favors. Like, I'm not going to edit this scene in no, any way to so help long. you. Like, the you are on an island, and the only thing that is going to sell this bit is you just violently freaking out like there is some weird-ass alien fly in your yeah, jacket. Yeah, like, he takes it through the whole house. Like. Yeah. Oh, my God. It is so funny. And it's one of those, those scenes in this movie that have that hybrid of just ridiculous silliness. Yeah. But it's also The budget awesome. really comes out in this scene. Right. Where you're just like, ah, okay. Which, yeah, I don't know if we've said yet, but yeah, this movie, 300,000, opened, like, it made, like, 14 million. It was successful. Which is huge. Yeah. No, super successful. Um, And uh, it, it was actually, it kind of predated the whole VHS thing. So it didn't even yeah, really 79. have. Yeah, Yeah. So um, it only was kind of writing the, the strength it's a of those. Betamax baby. Yeah. <laughs> it, it was just what it made in the theater. And it made a shit ton. Yeah. And um, no, it did great. Four sequels? Uh, five, I think. Well, five total. Yeah. Four sequels. Right, four yeah, sequels, yeah. right. But yeah, and it's, it's amazing that it, 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 the movie does this well when... It, like we've mentioned, we got a young director, young cast, you know, largely inexperienced folks making this movie. But they're also just using complete guerrilla tactics to make this movie. I, I read where um, they wanted to get a, a picture, a, a frame of that Morningside Cemetery. And it was this great sign and everything about the shot was beautiful, except it had a giant yellow street sign with an arrow because there was a curve in the road. And they were like, my God, this would be so great if that freaking sign wasn't in there. So one of the guys in the production crew just goes, hold on a sec. And he hopped into a van, and then he actually sold, like, for in case anybody was watching, he leans out the window like, a little bit further, a little bit further, is there anything behind me? And then when he gets about three feet from the sign, just guns it. <laughs> and, oh, dang it, I knocked it down. <laughs> Shoot. Sorry. You all saw I was trying. Yeah, yeah, everybody saw it, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that was that was the uh, the tactics here. They didn't always have permits um, to block off roads. They had to, like, rush through scenes to, to get them filmed. And yet this thing goes into theaters and makes millions of dollars. Yeah. That's what's so cool about and it. And it's just weird. Like, again, like, how do you tell your friend about this movie when it comes out? I mean, I guess it's one of those where you just go, 
and that probably is part of its success. Like you just have to go see this. Like I can't tell you about it, right? Because the thing is, you could you're only going to confuse them more, right? You've already maybe tried to tell them like what we have about the dwarves, yeah, the interdimensional dwarf slave trade, yeah, okay. And then there's also these flying silver balls, right? <laughs> Okay, like at this point... Which becomes the most iconic thing from it, which is weird. Yeah. It's not a huge part of the first movie No, it isn't. And that always shocks me when I go back and watch it, and I'm like, man, the ball really isn't in this very much. Barely in it. And it just was the the result It has to have a total of 20 seconds of screen time. Yeah. I mean, it makes the most of it. It does. Um, But uh, it was actually just from a... uh, Inspired by a, a reoccurring nightmare that Don Coscarelli would have about these flying balls that were just zooming around and, and coming after him. Um, and it, again, with that low of a budget, I don't know how he pulled it off, but that thing looks like it is, you know, out to do some damage. Yeah. And it's awesome. And it's so fun to watch. It's it's just one of the other nuggets about this movie that makes it impossible, like you're saying, to really explain to somebody what this is about. Because the truth is, folks, I'm not sure that they knew what it was about. No. Okay? Well, yeah, not if they're changing. Because they had a ton of different endings even to this movie. Right, That yeah. they didn't use. And then, and in all reality, it, you know, after doing some research, you kind of find out that the ending that we do get is sort of partially, part of it is is from another ending, and then they kind of stuck it together with some other things. Because so, we should say the ending to this is a dream. It's it, kind of a cop-out? I don't know. Well, let me ask you that, because I... This movie used to frustrate me uh, when I when I would was first watching it because of that ending, and you know it begs the question: like, do you need to have your movies you know all wrapped up with a nice you know red bow and everything is is finished off perfectly? Yeah. Because this movie, I think it sort of does that, but I still don't buy that it's a dream. Yeah, but, well, but and, we're supposed to, aren't we? Yeah, well, and here's my feeling on it: it because it. It does like that concept of oh all this stuff was a dream uh, does feel like a cop out. But then still, even in like this new I'm awake reality, there is still the tall man, right? You know, so it's and I I think what I like about it, or is, at least this is the way I can explain it away, is that it is while you know this movie is about grief and loss, that it is this like no matter like that him waking up from that and. Because he wakes up and you learn that Jody is the one who's dead, like not his parents. Why? Well, maybe his parents are still. I don't know. I, I guess they would because he's Reggie's watching him. Right. Yeah. But uh, but yeah. But it's he's lost his brother in this reality. So, but still, the tall man is there at the end to pull him back into darkness. So it's almost like no matter how, no matter you know how many times you're able to. Uh, wake yourself up to the reality of a situation that fear and depression is still waiting to draw you back in. That is my deep take. No. And it's a good one. And I think that you're absolutely right. I think once you start opening dimensions, (laughs) you know, you're, you're kind of, Oh, well, that is a weird part of the dream. Yeah, yeah. Like if that's, we don't know if the reality, well, I guess through the sequels, yes, then that's, is still a thing, but, that is a weird, just that's part of your, yeah, and in my dream, uh, right. through a tuning fork, you go into, into another dimension. Right. Yeah, There's they they, uh, they have a lot of faith in the viewer, you know? Yes. They they put a lot of trust in you to say, 
whatever you think this means, <laughs> that's what we probably intended, isn't it? But yeah, you're right. That ending with, with him sort of waking up from the dream, which is a heartbreaker for me because I love the character of Jody, the older brother. Yeah. So it's it's sort of a downer ending, but then the fact that the tall man is still in that, like you said, kind of woken reality, um, it, you know, it, you really aren't left with knowing what is the right dimension or the correct dimension sure. that we're in. Um, so... Yeah, it it's uh, the movie is filled with with questions and it doesn't nail a whole lot of stuff down. But what it does give you, this is another really cool thing to think about. The iconography of this movie, usually you're lucky if one thing in your movie kind of stands out as this symbolic icon. This movie not only has the tall man, the character of the tall man. Yeah. Not only has the flying silver spheres, mm-hmm. but it's got the most badass automobile <laughs> yes, to love the car. ever hug the road. And that is a 1971 Plymouth Hemicuda. Um, it was picked because Don Coscarelli was jealous of a kid that he went to high school <laughs> right. with who had one. It's like, I want to drive it. Right. So, But, you know, this is the crazy thing. Like, he gets his hands on this, this kind of dream car of his. But actually spends money in the budget to take it to a body shop and have the f- the fenders, the rear fenders, sort of flared out to have a uh, a sunroof cut into it, um, which was kind of new at that time. Yeah, and it's like, my God, that that some twenty four year old would go to that much effort. Like for me, I'd be like, Hey, we got the car. Yeah, let's film it. Um, but yeah, that's it's it was a definitely a labor of love. But yeah, you've got this iconic black car that is. And he lets Mike drive it. Yeah, but that's that's him as a kid having that car. Oh, like that it's yeah. sort of going back to saying like this is my childhood dream car oh, okay. that I wish I was driving. All right. Yeah. So yeah, a little heady there, but but yeah, I think that's that's where and it comes Mike's from. Mike's an ex- expert mechanic too. Yeah, even when the car doesn't <laughs> yeah, need there's, fixing. Yeah, there's a great scene. That thing <laughs> tears into the driveway just like perfect suspension and handling. You're like, "Wow." Mike jumps up, doesn't even have time to shut his door, and it has that hood open. Like, I think I know what the problem is. Like, yeah, there right. was a problem? <laughs> right. And, uh, yeah, and, and not only that, but, you know, he's confident enough to be working underneath the car with no one home. No one. On just some kind of rusted-out jacks, and eventually the car falls on him. Right. But Which he does the opposite thing, where... He senses there might be trouble outside the car, so he curls up into a ball and, like, I better get my whole body under this car. Yeah. The idea of, like, the first rule of survival being to find shelter is true, but it's not underneath a, you know, hoisted 2,000-pound car. Right. I mean, that, that thing's going to kill you. And uh, He is able to pop out. Yeah. Though. He's pinned and then just, like, rolls out. And then, uh, funny enough, there's a Dos Equis box uh, <laughs> in the uh, in the garage. There, it was actually a sponsor of the. It literally was. They, uh, it they, had to. Have been, they yeah. did. Yeah. Um, yeah. Any scene that could that could have a Dos Equis uh, box or bottle in it, or even if it shouldn't, it does. Right. So, uh, kudos to them for for grabbing that coin. I thought that weird scene of the tall man just having a cool drink and. <laughs> Just Winks at the camera. I was like, that's a bit much. Rolling the Dos Equis across the forehead. <laughs> right. Just the uh, flying Dos Equis bottle just zooming through the air. <laughs> yeah, that was weird. 
but uh but yeah there is uh that's a funny thing you could you could crazy talk this movie all you want and it's gonna match you just punch for punch yeah. i mean everything it, like like andy was saying if you tried to describe this movie to somebody they would think that you're joking because it's it's just that weird and what's so great about it is that all of the other horror movies from that time were just sort of reeling with um a serious tone or a brutal tone um there wasn't a lot of fantasy horror happening at this time no. it was it was really just more going for the the jugular uh you know figuratively and literally um but uh but this movie was this willing- movie went for the forehead figuratively and literally <laughs> it very much did and it got every bit of it <laughs> till he voided his bowels <laughs> But uh <laughs> yeah, that that's uh that's the thing. This movie just doesn't give a damn. Yeah. Like it's it's not held by by anything. And a lot of that comes from when you're self financing and you don't have a studio coming in saying, uh, we can't have that pubic hair. Right. Little bridge there to yes. the previous episode. <laughs> um but uh yeah, it, there's nobody to tell him no. So you've got a young man that says I can't make the movie that I wanted to make, so I'm just going to do whatever the hell I want to do. Yeah. And, uh, you know, without the Thank studio. God. Yeah. And it really soured him on the whole studio process, uh, which is to all of our benefit. Because, yeah. yeah, it's just, it, you know, an unleashed Don Coscarelli is, is good for all of us. And there's not a high kill count in this movie for a movie about turning dead people into slaves. There yeah. are not a lot of, you know, one of them's accidental. The I mean, because the guy who works at the mortuary gets hit with the ball. Yeah. The ball is indiscriminate. It does not care. Yeah, it's like a... Yeah, I got a like job a, here, bro. Like a great white shark. Yeah. Just does not give a damn. Um, You know, and there's the death at the beginning. Uh, Reggie dies, but then it turns out he's not dead. But still, like, there are, uh, there are a few that are assumed they're dead. Um. But not a lot of, like, just kills. Like, the tall man never really kills anyone. No. It's, yeah, there's nothing, like, with the exception of the sort of groundskeeper guy at the funeral home getting the, the, the sphere in yeah. the forehead. There's not a lot of just, like, gore for gore's sake. Yeah. Um, and there's... Uh, this, is, this movie's all atmosphere. Yeah, it is. And contact paper. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Somebody... Somebody said that uh, the inside of a of like a, a mausoleum has a lot of marble in it, right. and they ran with that. They, yeah, like um, I can get sheets <laughs> sheets of it, ten cents a sheet. <laughs> right. Um, it yeah, looks, it yeah, looks good. Yeah, make sure. Yeah, we don't we don't need to spend a lot on the the whole interior of the funeral home. I've got these fenders that I need to flare out on the car. <laughs> right. So you know, let's not get crazy. Um, but no, it's. Uh, the the movie holds itself together though. That's the thing. It's it's loose. It's loose as hell. Um, but a lot of that, like we've been talking about, is because there really wasn't a linear script written uh, like you would normally have. Um, a lot of editing happened, which is so you see some scenes kind of running together. It might feel sort of jarring, um, butted up against each other that don't really have. They're not related. Um, but it works for the the whole overall feel of the movie. Yeah. Being just it's, there is a point where there's like a five minute lull, I feel, and you're just kind of like, okay, but I couldn't even tell you what, what, like, why, 
Yeah, no, you're you're and right. And it's not a long movie. It's only an hour and a half long. I think I think you're right because the the one thing that the movie is willing to do is is take its time um, with some things. Obviously, like I said earlier, you don't even really know about the whole dwarf thing until I mean what is actually happening until later in the film. But yet you've got these scenes early on, like Jody r- r- just rolling down the road on a bicycle, <laughs> yeah. and Mike chasing after him. It's kind of you know supporting the whole Mike's fear of abandonment thing. But why put him on a bicycle? Right. Um, well, if he was driving, he'd never be able to run after. Well, that's him. true. Yeah, <laughs> Could, that part was important. It'd be a very short scene. It yeah. would be Jody. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, but no, it's this really sort of like pretty. And it, uh, it just has a, a st- its own unique feel. That's the one thing about this movie is that there's there's not another movie that feels like this one. Yeah. Um, well, and- I will I will say like yeah we were joking about the context you know the how that mausoleum or whatever is made like it's obviously very cheap, but still the design of it and the lighting of it like that's you know it's bright horror. There's not there are dark parts of it. But especially at the end, a lot of uh, the stuff is happening in well-lit hallways and white backgrounds. It's like this midsummer, like everything's very bright. Uh, yeah. But but there's dread. Which, right. You know, that that doesn't happen regularly at all. So for it to happen in 79, like that was a really cool take. Yeah, there's even light where there really shouldn't be light. <laughs> some that might have been a production, right? Right, but uh, but no, you're right. That's the thing. Like, it kind of goes back to what I was saying about the idea of like silly versus bad. And I, I I could understand how somebody could say, "Oh, that is a bad movie." Like, if they look at some of the acting, they look at some of the production. But really, like you said, some of those interior shots are extremely well done. Yeah, and I mean, it doesn't feel like uh, doesn't feel like a student film. You know, it doesn't feel like it's it's bare bones budget. It feels like a lot more than three hundred thousand. Let's put it that way. Yeah, and it oh, looks yeah. and it looks a lot better. Yeah, and and I mean, there's explosions too that kind of seemingly come out of nowhere. I mean, apparently cars in 1979 were just lined with gas tanks. Yeah, just yeah, yeah, just all around the perimeter of the car, just gas tanks, about twelve of them all the way around. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, it's spare no expense. I mean, with within three hundred thousand. Um, they they really make the most of it. I did like um, the uh, if we talk about the science fiction aspect of it. I did really appreciate because they do make a a comment about how the gravitational pull in the other dimension is a little different, which I think then translates very well and explains a lot of stuff. Like if you took a human into a stronger gravity, it would pull you down, right? Yeah. So you have someone like Angus Scrim, who's the tall man. Now he's in our gravity, gravity, <laughs> gravitational field. Yeah, right. Maybe that's made him. Maybe that's what's made him taller. The pull is not as strong. That's why he's able to lift up a five hundred pound casket, no problem. It's not that he has superhuman strength. It's just his body is accustomed to a different gravity. That's awesome. Boom. I have never in yeah. all of my years thought about that. Yeah. And it, isn't it funny that that's the description, so much so that that's his only name in the movie, is the tall man. Yeah. And it would be, you're, you're thinking it would be sort of, you know, it would counteract the whole where he comes from. It has that gravitational push down. 
But um, yeah, everything about like maybe him. there he's a short dude. Or maybe that's why he's in charge because maybe he's short, but he's taller than everybody else, you know. <laughs> right. And then when you you put him in our gravity, or gravity, and, uh, <laughs> and and all of a sudden the dude is what like, it's almost seven feet tall. Yeah. Um, no, he's uh, the character has an extremely low amount of dialogue, but whatever he does have, even if it's just one word, he makes the most of it. Boy, it's so again. That's another thing on the the uh, the iconography the list. About to begin, sir. <laughs> He's such disdain for everyone, right? He does. Yeah, he just can't he wait to get the job. hell out of here. He hates yeah. his job, right? It's like, oh, not only am I responsible for supplying my home planet with slave labor, I also have to run a small business in the tax. Right, taxes here are insane. <laughs> right. Yeah, and it's like I have to make them into dwarves, which means that I just have to make that much more of them. You know, right. I mean, it's, I have it's, to have containers to put them in, and my one, my inventory guy was killed by my security protocol droid. <laughs> and I work at a funeral home, so I have to wear a suit every day. Right, it's not comfortable. This is bullshit. Um, it's yeah, not. he can't win. No, <laughs> yeah. I get why he's so grumpy. Yeah, well. You do your thing, tall man. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I've been so selfish for all these years. It, you've got a point. He's just trying to get home. Yeah, right. He's probably got a wife and kids. Yeah. I mean, all the all the people here. Do you think they're all shapeshifters? Because he is a shapeshifter. Because the, the one woman, the only, this is an odd one. There's no final girl. Yeah. Unless yes. you count Chloe Sevigny. <laughs> uh, but no, there's no final girl. Uh, the only woman in the movie is really the tall man. It's just a different form that he takes. Very little nudity. You just get a, like, blase, gratuitous one boob. Right. Yeah. And uh, they, Like, just don't have it then. She doesn't even have a, a name. They call her the Lady in Lavender is, yeah. is in writing about the movie. That's what she's referred to as. She doesn't have a name. Um, and you're right. It... it that's one of the the early introductions or the early introduction of the weirdness of the movie because she does change shape from herself to the tall man in the sort of weird uh, scene cut. Yeah, it's uh, just an edit. Yeah, it's just it's there's no morphing there's no, tech here. <laughs> right. Yeah, and it's they didn't even like bother to line up like where no. the eyes would be, so the body jumps a little bit. Yeah, but the tall man doesn't. He doesn't give a damn. No, he's like, yeah, you know, he's pissed. Um, but yeah, that it, that would be an interesting exploration as far as like, is everybody on his planet like him? And you know, are they all that? Yeah, can pissed? they all shape shift? Right. Um, yeah, no, that's uh, you don't get those answers. That's the that's the thing. This movie doesn't care to give them to you. No, you know, that's part of the fun. Yeah, it is. Um, so what? Uh, if you want to talk about our uh, segment, which we do every week now, the pearl clutching. Yeah. How, how many clutches of the pearls would you give Phantasm? I think this is a low clutch. Clut- <sighs> We're going to have to scrap this bit already. I think this is a low pearl clutching ranking. Like, I'm going to go two. Yeah. Because not a lot. It's just a lot of what is going on here. I mean, even when we watch this with our friends... We essentially started it over. Yeah, we we out of we were getting a different copy, but then our buddy was like, "Please start this over," because I do not know what's happening. <laughs> right. So I can imagine someone of our age 
if they struggle, uh, someone of the pearl <laughs> of the pearl clutching nature would uh, just be they would not understand. You're right. It's it is a. I'm low... gonna say it's not gonna hold the interest of your casual viewer. Right. No, you're uh, you're right on the uh, the pearl clutching low end of the spectrum there because anything that is sort of shocking in this movie is very transactional. Like you get the one scene with the the mausoleum worker, and you know he gets the the sphere in the forehead, and a couple other moments, uh, some a couple jump scares, a couple wannabe jump scares mm-hmm. are really more like deep knee bends but um it's uh you're right there's not a lot of like look away from the screen like right. i have to put up my hands in in front of my eyes because i can't bear to watch yeah there's not a lot of that no and i think that that's just because it's it's making room for the sci-fi angle um which if you're not a horror person and you're more of a sci-fi guy this is or or person um this is uh great for you because there is, it really does take a, almost a complete diversion from the horror for at least a good, like, what feels like 10 minutes yeah. when they're really sort of exploring the, the other dimension. Yeah. And then it's just almost like a complete sci-fi movie at that point. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but, yeah, is it, uh, is it something that is going to connect with young people today? Like, that's, I, I'm trying to ask myself that question if, like, somebody in their 20s who has, has never seen this movie before what would their reaction to it be? And I think that probably the best thing to do is to tell them to have fun with it first, like be willing to, right? you know, make fun of it a little, you know? Yeah. I mean, I love it to death. I think it's great. But, um, yeah, it's it's the, the first reaction that I, that I had, I think probably everybody has with this movie, is that it's just goofy as hell. Right. But the more you watch it, the more it's, it's pretty damn cool. A lot of twists, but more, like, subversive twists, like... I did not see that coming. No, yeah. And that was, uh, we were recently watching this with a, a group of friends, and one friend in particular was really loving it. And, I mean, he was really loving it, and nothing had even really happened yet. No. You know, and it's it's so great because, you know, you think that movie has some weird moments, but then it turns a corner, and everything after that is strange. <laughs> and it just never lets up. So, But that's that's what makes it so great. It is... Again, it, does the quality reflect the overall experience? Uh, I'm going to say no. It, does the movie have some flaws? Sure. But it doesn't do anything to take away from the big picture. Yeah, no. Uh, I love this movie. This is one of my favorites. This is one that... Because I did not get to watch a lot of horror when I was a kid. Uh, my mom has since listened to this podcast and apologized for that. It's very sweet of her. It was unnecessary. But... Uh, this was one that I definitely like as a, a teenager w- was instantly uh, propelled towards because uh, and I think I saw it on TV and it was I missed kind of the beginning of it, but it was the scene with Jody and the lady in lavender and then Mike's running from the little druid guy. And I was like, what is this? Because I didn't because I was familiar with the sequels from ads and stuff like that. Uh, and then, yeah, like watching that, you're like, the silver balls are barely aren't even in this movie, you know. But like seeing this druid stuff, I was like, that that is in this movie. So yeah, there's so much weirdness in it that just really appealed to me, and I've just loved it ever since. You bring up a really great point, and that is for a lot of the movies that we talk about um, in these episodes, 
a lot of times we recommend to people to watch them in groups, like feel free to talk over them with your friends, invite some buddies over, watch it, crack jokes while you watch it. You can talk over it. You're not going to miss anything. You can't do that in this movie. I mean, you can watch it with your friends and, and I mean, you can say a couple things here and there, but you have to pay attention yeah. because look, even if you are paying attention, you still don't know what the hell is going yeah, on. When we right? started it over, I was like, all right, cool. <laughs> right. I mean, you you could watch it, I mean, every single frame and not look away for a second and still be a little lost. So this is not one to kind of turn away from, like, really give it your full attention, um, you know, to get the full experience. And maybe you'll have it figured out by the end. Yeah, I'm sure you will. Yeah, the director didn't, but maybe you will. So do you recommend this movie? A hundred, hundred thousand percent yes. Yeah. It is unlike anything else. It is genuinely a, a truly unique um, fixture in in the just bevy of of cookie cutter horror that was coming out at that time, it really stands out as something different. Yeah, and very special. And uh, spawned a lot of sequels. Not really. No one really from this went on to anything, though. I mean, besides the director and I mean Angus Grimm, he kind of had a thing. He had a career before. He won a Grammy for right. writing liner notes. Right. One I didn't even the... know that was a thing. Yeah, I thought it was, uh, like, music. <laughs> I, I didn't know right. that you could just, like, write your, like, like he's what's, basically. What's the creative difference in liner notes? Like, oh, he put the sound engineer before. Right. I don't know. I don't know. It's And, and it was it like he wrote, like, a foreword? Like, his opinion? Like, <laughs> right. did he, like, it's he the got mo- a, the, f- the most flowery. Yeah, he got, like, a Grammy for, like, proto-blogging, <laughs> basically. Like, that's, they gave him a fucking Grammy for that? Like, I mean, that's... Uh, well, but, you know, but God, yeah. God love him. Under his real name, which I don't remember what it is. It's actually... It's not as cool as Angus Grimm, so it, it doesn't not, matter. It's not as cool, but it's actually kind of cool. I can't remember what it is, but it's like three names. Yeah, it is like three names. Yeah. But, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, the... Um, nobody... You're right. Nobody really went on to do anything much outside of this, other than Don Coscarelli himself, who went on to do Beastmaster. He went on to do Bubba Hotep. Lawrence Rory Guy. Is Angus Grimm's real name? Run that past me one more Lawrence time. Lawrence Rory Guy. <laughs> so it's uh, I like so it's not like they could have called him the Tall Guy. It just yeah. at least like you know kept that in there. That's what it was on the call sheet. Yeah, Tall Guy. Um, yeah, no. Uh, the, what is good though, even if these actors didn't go on to other a lot of other recognizable projects, they sure as hell went on to the sequels. Yes. And what's really interesting about that is that Mike, the the younger brother in this in the first film, is replaced by a different actor in the second film. But they actually went back to Michael Baldwin in the other sequels that then came after that. Really? So you know he didn't get a chance to be in part two, but they well, did. they didn't get Crystal Bernard, did they? <laughs> no, okay. but they should have. <laughs> Uh, they got James LeGros, who yeah. is another, you know, pretty, if you know independent film, yeah. you're, you're familiar with him. But uh, he does a great job. Reggie comes back. Reggie is in all of them. Yeah. Um, and Yeah, uh, you, don't, you don't cut your friend out of the movie. <laughs> yeah. Like, hey, man, I'm making four more of these, but you're not in them. Right. And, yeah, because if you're Reggie, you're probably not just being flooded with offers. <laughs> like, yeah, like... 
He you don't. You don't gigs, really. Though. You don't really fit gigs. a type. You know, it's like <laughs> right. we, we need to. We need sort he of. He does a, look like Michael Ironsides, though. Like yeah. there is. Yeah. I thought he was forever. Yeah, we're not saying he's a hideous human being. He's no. just. Uh, well, I'm not saying Michael Ironsides is attractive. Right. Either. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, they kind of just uh, they exist somewhere in the middle there. Yeah. Between uh, beautiful and Michael Ironside. It's probably just a gravity <laughs> thing. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, that was this episode, 1979's Phantasm. It's a two thumbs up. One of these days, we're going to actually review a movie that one of us didn't like. Yeah. Be like, avoid this, but not yet. And it's not going to be our next one either, Tim. No. I already know this one we're both very excited about. It's going to be uh, 1984, very popular year. Uh, Friday the 13th, part four, the final chapter. Chapter. Definitively, yeah. There's Question no mark? more. <laughs> not not four or five more at all ever. <laughs> right. Yeah, we're not even to the halfway point at the final chapter. Yeah. 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 We're we're at the like we're in it like it should be like Friday the Thirteenth Part Four the intermission. <laughs> like that's that that would have been better. Yeah. It is a good final chapter though. It is. Anyway, that's uh that's for next time. Uh, again, I want to thank Sarah Dooley for our awesome theme song. You can get her book, Are You My Uber? A parody. Uh, I'm going to let Tim read it. I know he's he's been eyeing it. I've got a copy sitting on our, our recording table here, and he's like, I've got to dive into some Dr. Seuss parody. Yes. Uh, you can follow her at Unruliest Dooley on Instagram. She's an amazing musician. Uh, so, yeah, please follow us on Instagram, Slumber Podcast Massacre. Email us, slumberpodcast at gmail.com. We also have a Patreon, which seems uh, lame, uh, like we'd <laughs> ask you for money, but it does help with uh, the cost of hosting these episodes and things like that. So uh, if we get some Patreons, we'll start doing some special stuff. We're talking about like doing commentary tracks or like special trivia things with prizes. And who knows? Who knows? The, wor- the world is our oyster. Yeah, the sky's the limit. The sky's the limit. Uh, but yeah, um, am I forgetting any other plugs? No, I don't think so. So that's it. Uh, check us out next time. Uh, thank you very much for listening. Timmy, I'll see you later. See you, Andrew. <laughs>